You're listening to Word on Health, the report with its finger on the pulse of popular medicine with Paul Pennington. Word on Health, for your very best of health. Every two hours, someone across the UK is diagnosed with a brain tumour. They're uniquely complex, with over 120 different forms. Hugh Adams is from the charity Brain Tumour Research. We estimate that there are 60,000 families living with a brain tumour. There are 16,000 people diagnosed with a brain tumour each year, of which 4,500 are primary malignant brain tumours. We have no definitive information on the cause of brain tumours, and that just demonstrates that we don't know enough about the disease. Few outcomes for patients with brain tumours lag behind other cancers. A key thrust of Brain Tumour Awareness Month is to address that through a push for greater financial support from government for research funding. Absolutely, is that if we're going to improve options and outcomes for brain tumour patients, we need to invest in a discovery science that underpins all clinical innovation. And currently, 86% of the money going to brain tumour research is from charities, 14% from the government. And that's what we're challenging. If we look at what's happened with breast cancer and leukaemia, which are better funded, look at how we've improved the prognosis for those two disease areas in a generation. Now, if we had similar funding for brain tumours, we could do the same. And that's why our clarion call is for £35 million per year investment in brain research. With so many demands on the public purse from many disease areas requiring research, what's the case you're making in support of your call? There are messages around brain tumours that make us a special case, the, the fact that it's the biggest cancer killer of children and adults under the age of 40. I think the fact that historically the funding has been so poor that we haven't seen the advancements in our area. And let's be clear, we're only asking for parity of funding. We're not asking to a higher level than anywhere else, just like a levelling up agenda so we can enjoy the same results that have been enjoyed in other site-specific cancer areas. Because, you know, if you look at brain tumours, in terms of expected years of life lost, they are the most lethal form of cancer. And that's damaging not just to the individuals and the families, that's damaging to society, that loss of potential. We must do better for brain tumour patients. Putting the funding parity issue to one side and looking to the future and the launch of the Advanced Research and Invention Agency, what potential does that offer for brain tumour patients? be a good legacy from the pandemic it's we can do things differently and scientists when they're funded and when the infrastructure that can bog them down is taken away can deliver quickly remarkable achievements now if we were to add that alacrity to brain tumor work look what we could achieve putting you in the picture this is word on health with paul pennington Around three-quarters of people questioned in a nationwide poll commissioned by the Dyspraxia Foundation stated that they thought that behavioural, social and learning problems that are associated with dyspraxia was simply an excuse for naughty or disruptive children. Sally Payne is from the Dyspraxia Foundation. A lot of the children present in the classroom and at home with behavioural problems and they often present to healthcare services by parents who are worried about the behaviour. So Sally, how do we distinguish between a child that's being naughty and a child with dyspraxia? Children with dyspraxia have coordination difficulties that make everyday activities really hard for them. So there's often a build-up of challenges throughout the day. They've been frustrated by the fact they had difficulty getting dressed in the morning. The mum was shouting at them because they came downstairs late. They forgot to take the thing to school. They're tired when they reach school because 
they've had to put extra effort into walking and keeping going. So before they've even reached the classroom, they've had to deal with a huge number of challenges. And then that can overspill into behaviour that appears to be naughty. But actually, when you look behind the behaviour, there's a whole lot that's gone on before that. I understand that dyspraxia may affect up to 6% of the population and up to 2% severely, males being four times more likely to be affected than females. Do we have any idea what causes dyspraxia? No, and that's a real problem for us. There's no conclusive thought about what it is, lots of theories. Our best guess at the moment that there's been some delay in the development of the nervous system before the children are born. It's not brain damage, we know that because you can't see anything on brain scans and there's certainly no blood tests that you can do that will show what it is. Sally, I believe that the condition is a misunderstood and often misdiagnosed one and it can be a real fight for parents to get their child's condition recognised. We know there's no cure, but are there things that can be done to help? There's an awful lot that we can do. Some children will benefit from physiotherapy to develop their strengths and their coordination. Other children will benefit from occupational therapy to develop their fine motor skills, their everyday activities. Some children have speech difficulties too, so they may benefit from speech therapy. But I think all children will benefit from understanding at school, so perhaps extra support from the special needs coordinator within the school setting. This is Word on Health with Paul Penningson. Psoriasis is a chronic debilitating skin condition which can occur on any part of the body at any age. The patches bleed and crack and can be very sore, but it's not just the physical burden of pain that sufferers have to contend with. Recent research suggests that of the estimated 1.2 million sufferers, over three quarters have to endure emotional distress or anxiety due to their disease. Dr. Helen Richards is a consultant psychologist with a special interest in the psychological impact of skin diseases. In my experience, this isn't a small problem. Psoriasis can have a significant impact on individuals and we treat a number of people with psoriasis who are clearly suffering emotionally because of their condition. Some people may feel extremely depressed and have suicidal thoughts and the level of distress experienced by psoriasis sufferers has been compared to that seen in conditions such as cancer or heart disease. It appears that the distress individuals experience is more to do with the individual's belief about their condition rather than the clinical severity of their disease. A common complaint of sufferers is that psoriasis, like many skin conditions, is often perceived by healthcare professionals as a relatively minor complaint. However, as we've heard, this chronic and often lifelong condition that affects about 2% of the UK population is much more than a cosmetic nuisance. Whilst a cure for this non-infectious disease still proves elusive, there are things that can be done to improve the day-to-day life of a person with psoriasis, as GP and broadcaster Dr Sarah Jarvis explains. Treating the disease quickly and effectively will give you really quick relief of the physical symptoms and of course that can have a major impact on your emotional state as well. Fortunately, there are new medications available. Having effective treatment can make an enormous difference to your confidence. A lot of the problem about psoriasis is the feeling that the disease controls you. If you have a really effective treatment that works quickly, you know that when you need to, you can be in control of your disease. Putting you in the picture. This is Word on Health with Paul Pennington. 66% of us are not aware of the link between eating too much salt and one of our biggest killers. Very few are aware of the link between high salt intake and the likes of brittle bone disease and kidney stones. Catherine Jenner is campaign manager at CASH, otherwise known as Consensus Action on Salt and Health. If you have too much salt over a long period of time, it puts up your blood pressure. Too high blood pressure is the main cause of strokes, heart attacks and heart disease. Having too much salt can cause other problems as well, such as stomach cancer, obesity, leaching calcium from the bones 
leading to osteoporosis and also kidney stone. So it's really important to try and cut down as much as possible. Catherine, I know your research revealed that young people were particularly clueless about too much salt damaging their health, perhaps because they associate the conditions that we've highlighted with older people. And yet I understand blood pressure starts to rise from childhood. So for young and old, how much is too much? The current recommendation is that we have no more than six grams of salt a day, whereas in fact we're eating more like nine grams a day. Most of the salt in our diet is actually hidden. So when we talk about having no more than six grams of salt a day, most of that will actually be hidden away in processed foods, which doesn't just mean crisps and snacks and ready meals, but it's actually things that are more everyday products such as bread, breakfast cereals and meat products like ham and bacon. So what steps would you suggest to wean us off our high salt intake habit? Your taste buds get used to the flavour of having lots of salt. The more salt you have, the more salt you want to have and you'll find products without salt in being more bland. But actually, if you cut down quite slowly, you really do not notice the difference in the flavour of food. There are many things you can do to cut down on the amount of salt you eat. It would be really helpful to try and add less salt when you're cooking and less at the table because that salty taste that you get straight away. So you'll just get used to eating less salt that way. But one of the biggest things you can do is try and choose lower salt brands. We found quite often that supermarket-owned brands have got less salt in them than the big brands, which have been a bit slower to catch up on salt reduction. And also when you're eating out as well, a lot of meals can be very salty. Try and step away from ones that have got lots of salt added to them or in fact even try and ask the chef if you have not put salt in your food. Putting you in the picture, this is Word on Health with Paul Pennington. Bowel cancer is the fourth most common cancer in the UK, sadly taking the lives of 44 people every day. Although it can occur in people of any age, 8 out of 10 of us who get cancer of the bowel are over the age of 60. It's a disease where early diagnosis makes for the best prognosis, a key goal of the NHS Bowel Cancer Screening Programme that targets the over 60s in England and Wales and over 50s in Scotland. Genevieve Edwards is CEO of the charity Bowel Cancer UK. The bowel cancer screening programme is brilliant because it can pick up changes in the bowel before they've even become cancerous. At the start of the pandemic, so about a year ago now, the screening programmes were paused right across the UK, leaving the NHS with a bit of a headache to figure out how to get those invitations out and process them all for all the people that should have had them and then continue with the ones that ought to be getting them in a routine way. So they've put so much thought into how they can restart this without disadvantaging people. So the invitations are going out again. As I said, there's a backlog to deal with, and that's going to take a bit of time to work through. But they are absolutely determined to do it. Genevieve, prior to the pandemic, there was a concerted effort to make us all aware that blood in our stools, a change in bowel habit that persists for more than three weeks, abdominal pain, perhaps a lump in the abdomen, unexpected weight loss and fatigue or extreme tiredness should be reported to our GPs. You've recently conducted research across the UK into people's knowledge of bowel cancer symptoms. How did we do? About half of adults living in the UK weren't aware of any symptoms of bowel cancer at all. The one that people do were most likely to recognise is the big red flag symptom, which is noticing blood when you go for a poo. So it's either blood from your bottom or or blood that's in your poo. But the other main symptoms had a very low awareness rate. I know with bowel cancer, if you've previously had a bowel polyp, a personal history of chronic bowel inflammation or a family history of bowel cancer, you are at an increased risk. The other risk factors are well within our means to reduce, aren't they? About half of all bowel cancers could be prevented if we had a healthy lifestyle. And you can really reduce the risk. It's not rocket science. So eating a healthy diet for bowel cancer, it's important to avoid as much as you can processed meat and limit red meat. 
eating lots of fibre from grains, pulses, veg and fruit, all that yummy stuff, and trying to maintain a healthy body weight. So that's the first thing. Exercise, of course, really does help as well. So the classic 30 minutes of physical exercise, like going for a nice walk five times a week, cutting down on alcohol is really helpful. And we all know the impact of smoking on lung cancer, but about 8% of bowel cancer cases are linked to tobacco smoking. So cutting out the cigarettes will really help. So there's lots that we can do. And I'm really interested to see in recent years that people are talking much more about gut health and what you can do to look after your digestive system and your gut. And it's so beneficial in so many ways. I'm sure it'll make a difference. Word on Health. On air and online 52 weeks of the year with Paul Pennington. Word on Health. Your personal prescription for your very best of health.